Peter has spent his whole letter up to this point communicating to us as the church that we are God's special people. Uh, he's told us that we have a unique identity and a unique mission. One verse that encapsulates this is 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where we learn our identity, that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and then also that we have a mission, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, in our last study, uh, in our last passage of 1 Peter last week, Peter also taught us that not only are we a special people, but we live during a special time. Uh, he said in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter wrote those words almost 2,000 years ago, but they are just as accurate today as they were then. We're living right now in the final stages of God's redemptive plan, and so is Peter, of course. Creation and the fall of humanity are past tense. So is the law of Moses. So is the tabernacle system of worship that we're even studying in the book of Leviticus on Tuesdays. So is the priesthood that flowed from Aaron. Prophecies have been fulfilled. The Son of God has come. Jesus has come. He's died for our sins. He rose, he ascended, he birthed the church by his spirit. And in this church age that we are now in, we await Jesus's return. And one day, Jesus will return. He will descend, the trumpet will blast, and he will bring the church home to himself. He will judge the world, I believe the Bible teaches, with a seven-year period of great tribulation that will feel very similar to the time of the plagues in Egypt, which we studied in our study of the book of Exodus. And the world will follow their Pharaoh at that future date, the man of sin, or as the Bible calls him, even the Antichrist, until finally turning to war once and for all against Jesus. Jesus, of course, cannot and will not lose. And after judging the world, Jesus will establish a 1,000-year reign of peace here on earth. And we will rule with him for those thousand years until one last rebellion takes place. At that time, Jesus will win once and for all, and the heavens and the earth will melt away, giving way to a new heaven, a new earth, and a new heavenly city for us to dwell in forever with God. And what Peter is telling us is that we are in the church age, the final stage leading up to that time. The end of all things, according to Peter, is at hand. Now, in response, Peter has already told us that we need to press into our church community, not so that we can isolate ourselves from the world, but to get what we need in order to fulfill our mission. And as we saw last week, the community that Peter envisioned, it was one that had sober prayer, it was one that had sacrificial love, and it was one that had cheerful hospitality. So I hope this last week you invited somebody over. But today, we get to see a bit more of God's heart for us. So let's read our two verses together, verse 10 and 11. 
He said, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first thing that I want you to notice is that we should steward God's gift. You know, Peter said there in verse 10 that each one of us, each person in the church, each believer has received a gift. And that we must use those gifts, according to Peter, we must use those gifts to serve one another. So according to Peter, everyone in the church has something to offer the other members of the church. Now I think this is particularly impressive when you think about the original recipients of Peter's letter. A lot of these people that Peter was writing to had spent their entire lives until meeting Jesus in the filth of the idolatry and culture of that time. Many of them were outcasts from society, and there are strong indications in this letter that they had mostly been a partying and sensual people before surrendering to Jesus. But now, they're converts, they're justified, they're born of the Spirit, and they all had something to offer the rest of the church. Now, I'm not a hockey fan, but there's this part of hockey that really amuses me. It's the penalty box for bad behavior. You know, when a hockey player does something against the rules, they're penalized, and I love it. They're put as grown men into a box with plexiglass to take a timeout, and because they're in a glass-walled box, the whole world can watch these guys thinking about what they've done, and I especially love it when a whole team or a bunch of guys get penalized at the same time and the penalty box is just overflowing with these guys all uncomfortable inside the box trying to make room for each other. I think a lot of us have a penalty box view of our usability before God. I think a lot of us think that our past lives, our exposure to various sins, our bad behavior in the past takes us out of the game. And make no mistake, God does want us, once we become believers, to pursue a life of holiness because he is holy. The less we sin, the less we hurt ourselves and the less we hurt others. The less we sin, the less we hurt the church's mission. But no matter our pasts, and sometimes because of our pasts, every true believer has something to offer the church. Every believer has and can be a gift to the rest of the church. He wants all of us to serve one another. Now, God envisions the church, God's vision for the church. One of the ways that he sees the church, in other words, is as a community with Christ as its head. Under Jesus, he gave the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He also gave the church every one of those saints, every individual believer. 
Earlier in his letter, Peter introduced us to the priesthood of all believers. In other words, though some word-based offices exist in the church and are, of course, important, all of us are called to serve others in the church. And the Holy Spirit longs to gift and longs to empower each one of us to make a difference in our church community. You know, before Jesus died on the cross, he spoke to his disciples. One of the things that he said to them in John 14, verse 16 and 17 is, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. What Jesus was saying here is that the spirit at the time before the cross was with his men. But he also promised that at one point the Spirit would come and live inside of his men. Not just be with his guys, but live inside of his guys. At that point, the point before the cross, when Jesus said those words originally, the Spirit couldn't live inside of them yet because Jesus had yet to be resurrected. And Jesus had to be the first to experience resurrection life. But after he did, he breathed on his disciples and said, receive now the Holy Spirit. But even later, before Jesus left the earth, after his resurrection, before he ascended, Jesus said to them in Acts 1 verse 8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, According to Jesus, before the cross, the Spirit was with the disciples. After Jesus rose from the dead, the Spirit lived within the disciples. But Jesus promised that when he ascended, the Spirit would come upon the disciples. And with the Spirit upon your life, you become strengthened for the work that God asks of you. Part of God's Spirit coming upon and empowering us is part of or empowered by the gifts of the Spirit, which Peter is alluding to here in verse 10 and 11, that each one of us has received a gift that we need to use faithfully to serve one another. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 and 7, that there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, what Peter, or excuse me, what Paul is saying there is that the gifts come in all sorts of packages and are used in all sorts of ways in individual Christian lives. It's God the Spirit who empowers them all in each one of us. And he gives us these gifts, according to Paul, for the common good. Not for you as the person to receive the gift, but for others around you. Paul went on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I don't have time today to break down every gift of the Spirit in the New Testament. I've done so in a previous series, and I'd encourage you to go and listen to that if you'd like to. It was a few years ago. But we must know that the Spirit has gifts 
that he wants to give to each of his children. He gives them out, according to Paul, as he wills. Now these gifts, these gifts of the Spirit, they're not scary, they're not strange, and they're definitely not self-focused. They're all for the benefit of others. So pray for the Spirit to empower you and reveal the gifts that he's given to you. Jesus said in Luke 11, verse 3, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? As Jesus said, ask the Father. Even right now as I'm speaking, ask the Father for the gifts that he has for you. Trust him that he'll give you the gifts of the Spirit that he has planned for you. You know, I grew up in a church planner's home. I grew up in a pastor's home. The last thing on earth I wanted to be was a pastor. But when the Spirit got a hold of my life, one of the gifts that he decided to give me was a gift of teaching. And along with that came a pastoral call and heart. There was not a lot that I could do about it. It's just as I walked with the Lord, this is what he drew out of my life. So I think in part, it's a decision to enter into this kind of life. But on the other hand, the Spirit of God has a will and a purpose for each one of us. What are the gifts that he wants to give to you? And when he gives you those gifts, use them. Use the gifts that he has given to you. That's the exhortation that Peter is giving to us. Recently, Christina and I, we went to one of our favorite local restaurants, Baja Cantina in the Carmel Valley. And when we walked in, there was this young hostess who was managing the hostess station. And she kept giving me strange looks as she was bringing us to our table before, when seating us, she finally admitted that I reminded her of this creepy villain from the Walking Dead TV series. <laughs> I had to kind of assure her that whatever that guy did in the show, I would not do in the restaurant. But even at the end of our meal, when we left the restaurant, she stopped us again at the hostess station, and she pulled out her phone. She had all these pictures of this character and just wanted to verify to me and Christina that I looked like this character. And she told us when we left that we needed to go home and we needed to watch a scene with this character. And I'll admit we tried. Uh, the YouTube clip that we found was this particular character in the midst of a profanity-laced tirade. And because women and children were there, I clicked it off within three seconds. And then I forgot all about her assignment until a month or so later when we went back to Baja Cantina. And when we returned, we walked in the door, and there was this hostess. And the first thing she wanted to know was, did you watch the show? I forgot about the little five-second clip, and so I told her, no, I, I, I didn't watch it. And she scolded me. She said, don't come back until you watch it again. And I was like, yes, ma'am, to this little 15-year-old hostess. So I'm not going back until I've done my homework. Hopefully I can find a cleaner version. Now, of course, in a much stronger sense, I dare not head to Christ's forever kingdom without executing the assignment that he's given to me. The gifts that he's given me are not for me, and the gifts he's given you are not for you. They're for us, and they glorify 
him. They've got to be used. It's the assignment we've been given. Jesus told various stories about this concept. In one, a certain landowner, the master of a house, departed on a long journey. He committed resources into the hands of three of his servants. With an eye on his return, the first two servants doubled the investment by the time the master returned. But the third servant buried his money in the ground, producing the exact same amount when the master came. The master was not impressed with the third man. He had not used the gift that had been given to him. Brothers and sisters, Peter says that we should be good stewards of God's varied grace in verse 10. We must use the gifts that he's given. We must fulfill the assignment that he left for us. Before I say anything else, this might be the sole exhortation that you need to receive today. Many of you know the word very well. Many of you are solid in your individual life. You're mature as a person, but you're not serving the Lord. You're not using your gifts. You're not mentoring anyone, discipling anyone, leading anyone, pouring into anyone else's life. And you need to. People are hurting and they need the body of Christ. And so I'd encourage you to be a good steward of the gifts that God has given to you. But the second exhortation this text gives us is that we must speak God's word. We must speak God's word. Look at verse 11. Peter said, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, when Peter talked about the gifts, he really just broke them up into two big categories, speaking and serving. And here, we're looking at the speaking gifts. These categories, they hold true when you look at the rest of the New Testament about the spiritual gifts. You know, we have already thought about a list of speaking authoritative offices in the church. I mentioned it to you, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. And even in the context of this passage, Peter is kind of warming up to talk about or to the pastors of the church, which he'll do in chapter 5. But beyond these offices are gifts, gifts like prophecy or teaching or exhortation or words of wisdom or words of knowledge. Beyond official offices, though, and beyond specific gifts, though, I think Peter was also likely thinking of times that individual believers would offer counsel or encouragement or exhortation to other members in the church. It's not that every single word that we ever speak has to be a quotation of Scripture. I mean, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, you know. Are you hungry? Well, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. No, we're allowed to talk and say what we're going to say, but when we're representing God, we need to understand and communicate as if we're communicating his word. This happens in pulpits and publications, but also in kitchens and coffee shops. You could be hammering nails on the job site while giving biblical counsel to a coworker. And Peter said, when we speak in this way, 
We must speak what God says. We must speak the oracles of God. Now, this ability seems especially important right now in the moment that we're in culturally. We've got to be solid in God's word. We've got to be saturated with God's word. Again, this doesn't mean we only speak direct scripture quotations, but when speaking as God's representative, we should take care to justify our words and our opinions and our counsel by God's word. To speak the oracles of God means to speak God's message, even if communicated with our own words. But how can our words represent God's word? Well, our words can represent God's word when they are saturated by scripture. As I said earlier, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As God's ambassadors, we must know his thoughts. And he has revealed his thoughts to us in the pages of his book. So we've got to know his word. Our words can also represent God's word when they, are, when they accurately represent the gospel message. Paul observed the time in Peter and Barnabas's life where they engaged in hypocrisy, and to quote Paul, they were not in step with the truth of the gospel. For instance, right now I'm teaching the book of Leviticus on Tuesdays. Leviticus in line with the gospel is much different than Leviticus before the cross. So you got to know the word, but you've also got to be in line with the gospel in your understanding of the word. And I think our words can also represent God's word when they carry the correct emphasis. God's word is comprised of many nails of truth. But when a believer perpetually hammers on the same nail, they might be in danger of misrepresenting God's word. And I think also our words can represent God's word when they carry God's tone. You know, for instance, God hates sin, but a believer should not give the impression through their tone that God hates the sinner. He longs for all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. So how can we become competent to speak the oracles of God to each other? Let me give you five suggestions. First, read the Word. Read the Bible every day. I was recently speaking to a young man who, in the craziness of some major life changes that he's going through, major decisions, he took some time to just sit on the beach for a few hours and read the entire book of Acts. And he was just searching God's word, allowing it to peer into his life and reorganize his thoughts. You know, each day we need that. Each day we need God's word. Now there's grace when we don't, but it is good medicine to read the book every day. Second, another encouragement I give to you is hear the word exposited. Uh, what that means is hear the word taught in a verse-by-verse -verse systematic manner as I'm doing here on our Sunday or in our Sunday gatherings. There's nothing wrong with topical teaching. I'm praying through teaching topically a bit more in my non-Sunday teachings in next 
year. But part of the reason I exposit verse by verse, especially on Sundays, is that it's a great way to purge my communication of my own ideas and my own opinions. Anyone can spout off, and I know you're listening to a lot of other voices throughout the week, but at least follow good expositors. Third, read good books. In our modern world, you just cannot expect a 35-minute sermon each week, one that is spoken to various generations and with both genders present, uh, where you will likely be there around 30 Sundays of the year. You cannot expect that to cover every subject of Scripture that you need to inform your thoughts. So at the end of my notes online, I've got listed some good resources for you, a starter set, so to speak, of some good resources and personal and spiritual life books that can help get you going in the right direction. You've got to be a reader. Fourth, I'd encourage you to run with solid believers. In small groups or one-on-one, these solid believers can help test your thoughts and your impressions in a safe space. You know, you might say something in the presence of a solid believer, and they might look at you and say, where'd you get that idea? That's not true. (laughs) And they might help you reorganize your thoughts. And then fifth and lastly, walk in the Spirit. You know, the Spirit, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 13, searches the deep things of God's heart. He knows God because he is God. So he can illuminate God's word for you better than anyone. This doesn't mean that he's going to show you truths or new things that no one else has even seen before, but he's able to make the word come alive to you. And once it comes down to actually speaking words of counsel and encouragement or correction, You must lean on the Spirit to strengthen you for the work. Now, Peter said in verse 11 that this strength comes from God. How does God, by the Spirit, strengthen us to speak as God's representatives? Well, one of the things that the Spirit will do is the Spirit will give you boldness. We need boldness in our time, especially to deliver God's truth. You see, when you speak as the oracles of God, whether to hundreds of people or just to one person, you increase the possibility of becoming someone's enemy. So you need boldness because the word divides. Another way that the Spirit will help you is by giving you clarity. Too many words of counsel or teaching or exhortation are a fog of platitudes, sentimentalism, pop psychology, and self-help. But the Spirit can make us clearer and more rooted in the truth. Another way the Spirit can strengthen you is by leading you to share at the right time. You know, the Proverbs say that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. That means that you delivered the right word at the right time and in the right way. Sometimes we don't know exactly when to speak, but when we're sensitive to the Spirit's prompting, He will help us know when and how to share. And the Spirit can also strengthen you 
by opening the right opportunities to you. He prepares hearts. He creates the moment. He opens doors. And finally, the Spirit will strengthen you by giving you strength. That's what he's doing. He's strengthening you, strengthening you to share the word. And to do that publicly or personally and privately, it can be tiring work. It can be emotionally and mentally exhausting. So God must energize you for the job. But the Spirit can also strengthen you to get the knowledge and wisdom that you need to share the word with others. He can lead you in the right timing, knowing when and how to share. And he will be the one to give you opportunities to share along with the energy required. So we're meant to serve or st- uh, God by stewarding the gifts he's given to us, speaking God's word. But next, we learn that we need to serve with God's strength. We need to serve with God's strength. He says in verse 11, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, all of us, according to Jesus, are called to serve. He said that greatness comes through service and that the last shall be first. And in the exiled church, the church on the margins of society, we've, we've got to serve each other. We just really need to. In families, Men need to serve their wives and children. In groups, members must serve others. In ministries, we must serve. We've got to roll up our sleeves and go to work. But Peter also has in mind the gifts of service mentioned throughout the New Testament. Some of those gifts are gifts like the gift of generosity, the gift of leadership, acts of mercy, helping, or administration. He might even mean the rarer and perhaps as we might categorize them, the more supernatural gifts of faith or healing or miracles and discerning of spirits. With these gifts, we are meant to serve one another. Peter said we have to do it by the strength that God supplies. We gotta tap into God's strength when serving. And why do we need God's strength? Well, if you're going to serve, you need God's strength to be faithful in your service we cannot remain committed to serving others if we are not faithful Uh, too many people say yes to serving others when actually they mean no or they treat their commitment like a loose commitment that they can break at any time if they choose but when you commit receive god's strength to be faithful there will be times and days You don't want to serve. You don't want to get up. You don't want to do it. But you must push through. You've committed, and there's a reward for keeping your commitments. And we also need God's strength to push through a lack of appreciation. You know, when you serve others, sometimes people will treat you like a servant. It doesn't feel great in those moments, but God can strengthen you to endure that lack of honor. He loves you. He sees your service even when no one else does. And we need God's strength to endure shameful treatment. Serving others puts you with others. And sometimes people do and say hurtful things. I don't know anyone who has served Jesus' church who hasn't also accumulated some scars. 
But God can strengthen you to endure this form of suffering. And we need God's strength for the energy needed to do the work. Opening your home on week 12 of the life group quarter can be a tiring experience. 12 weeks in a row. Everybody else gets to have weeks that they skip like life group, but not you. You're hosting. Serving at the 8.30 a.m. Calvary Kids service can feel a little tiring. Staying up late with a distressed friend in Christ can be demanding, but God, he can give you the energy. And we need God's strength for the humility required to serve well. If we're not humble, we won't serve in the first place, or we will expect much in return when we do serve. But humility helps us lower ourselves to help others. And we need God's strength for the cheerfulness and patience required to serve Jesus and others well. It's an honor to serve Jesus by serving his people, of course, but our natural self does not like doing it. So the Spirit can strengthen us to cheerfully and patiently serve our church family. So let's serve one another with the strength that God supplies. Extend yourself to make disciples. Extend yourself to practice hospitality. Extend yourself to encourage ministry. Extend yourself to counsel and encourage others. Extend yourself to serve other believers. Use your life well. Life is not about wealth accumulation. Experience accumulation. Peace accumulation. It's not about you but it's about him, and he wants us to use our gifts for others. When we do, it represents our God well. It reflects well on him. It brings him glory, and that's why Peter said in closing, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.